Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle, and I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and the founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. For season three, we are sitting down with some of the most successful founders to better understand what entrepreneurship means to them, the operational processes they have employed on their startup journey, and what lessons they've learned along the way. Today's guest is Nigel Verdun, co-founder and CEO at RailsBank. RailsBank is a global banking as a service business that enables any company or brand to become a fintech. Before founding RailsBank, Nigel was successful with a few other companies. He founded Evolution in 2003, which was acquired by BAE Systems. And then Nigel is also the founder of Currency Cloud, which was acquired for £700 million by Visa. So an incredible amount of depth and breadth when it comes to entrepreneurship. So let's find out more about Nigel's story. Hi, Nigel. Welcome to Riding Unicorns. Thank you for the invitation. I'm uh, delighted to be here. Great. So we're starting all season three episodes with a broad question, which is what does entrepreneurship mean to you? To me, it's looking at problems that uh, annoy you or you see opportunity in. And you have the thinking that uh, I wish it could be like this. And then going and doing something about it. And it's sometimes quite a lonely space because, as you've probably seen that classic uh, YouTube thing of the first dancer, it's the first crazy dancer getting up on a dance floor and trying to figure out, can we solve this problem? What's the economics behind it? Do people actually really care about it? And that type of thing. And being able to put up with a lot of really don't care, no's, and lots of knockdowns. So you just got to be fairly robust uh, to go through that and keep the, the vision going. But also be uh, sort of uh, self-introspective enough to be able to say <laughs> that just doesn't work and, and move on. But years ago, I used to co-own with a friend of mine, Damon Hart Davis, one of the first web publishing internet service providers in the UK. And there was Demon Internet, there was Pipex, there was the University of Kent and ourselves, uh, Xnet. We decided that there was no future in internet protocol and, and uh, dial-ups or anything like that. So I sold out for about £7,000 and Demon sold out, I think, two years later for £30 million. And in those days, that was an awful lot of money. Yeah, I mean, it's not often that we get to speak to guests on Riding Unicorns who've set up two hugely successful businesses back-to-back. We've had Alex Chesterman, so he, he's another example. But what is it that motivates you, that motivated you to start RailsBank after Currency Cloud? RailsBank was really, again, a problem that everybody in that first wave of fintech, sort of like 2011, 2012, were all taking 12 to 18 months before they even signed up a customer because they were building infrastructure, everything that's non-value. And uh, that was burning venture money, just building infrastructure rather than building a product on top of your infrastructure. So we, we did it in Currency Cloud, TransferWise did it. Everybody pretty much at that time had to build all the pipes and things. So we thought, why don't we go and build the pipes and make them available and solve all the operational pieces from the risk management, simple APIs so you can just integrate to the same sort of way we did it with FX and payments for Currency Cloud, just hide all the, the stuff you just don't need to know. So. That's what we originally did it was to, to help launch uh, 
uh, fintech companies faster. Uh, where we've evolved to is this world we, we call embedded financial experiences. And talking about Kazoo and, and, and Alex, for example, embedding the, the loan into the car buying experience because consumers don't wake up in the morning and want to buy a car loan. They want to buy a car. Consumers are all driven by experiences. People don't want to just buy headphones. They want to have a music experience. Uh, headphones are just part of it. So the real thinking now is embedded financial experiences within the existing consumer experience. So you don't have to drop out and have to deal with a bank or deal with a financial service provider. It's seamless. And I think Auto One in Germany, similar sort of thing to Kazoo, you can buy and finance a car in 40 seconds, which is an amazing experience for the consumer. You don't have all those paperwork to fill in or anything else like that. You can just say, this is what you can afford. Here's the catalog of what you can afford. Using open banking and other tech, you can go through the data to make the underwriting of the loan. Uh, but it's stayed within the auto one experience. You don't have to drop out to the financing company or anything. So that's what we think the world is now about and all the infrastructure to deliver those experiences. That's what we do now. It's really interesting that differentiation between like a product business and an infrastructure business. And I guess the fundraising journey is probably a little bit different for those two companies. What are the milestones that investors want to see when you're raising for a business like that? I think it's the same regardless of your product business or your uh, infrastructure business. Seed, Series A, and all the different other stages. Seed, all they really care about is the deck and the team and the TAM, a total addressable market. So if it's a massive addressable market, there's competitors, some may be competitive, some maybe not, and you've got a team that you can believe in, that's all they're investing in at that time because ideas are cheap, teams deliver. And so on the early stage, it'd say, here's our idea. I was lucky to work alongside a guy called John Coplin, who used to run a Google Pay EMEA. And he said he tried to get Citibank to deliver 18 countries to him within two years. And he said, like three years later, they'd done really nothing. And so he, he'd seen the pain point. Uh, and so we, we went around with John, he was one of our first money in and, and various others uh, around to, to raise capital in there because they, they figured out the problem, saw it was there and they backed the team because we've done it before. On series A onwards, uh, that's all about traction, whether it's downloads or an app or whether people uh, buy into your value prop. And so before building tech, one of the big learnings has been create a value prop and see if people buy it. I think Dropbox are probably the best people to ever do that. They just had a landing page with the value prop, store data for free, essentially, and got a million signups where they built any tech. And so it's the same thing. We had a, a value prop of Access Global Bank with five lines of code, a whole load of stubbed out APIs to say, this is what our APIs would look like. They don't do very much, but you can actually play with them and see who, who bit, why they bit, and understand, did they buy your value proposition or not? Because you can build as much as you want, but if people don't buy it, you've got no value to give to somebody. So focus on a value proposition, whether it's a, a retail side or infrastructure side like ourselves, and then stick that under as many people's noses as you can and prepare for a lot of no's. And another learning is don't ask people who like you, feel like your grandmother and stuff like that, because they'll always say, oh, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So the skew of your feedback 
it's highly skewed to people who want to say yes. You want to find just a good skew of people who have never met you before and say, oh God, yes, I, I would buy that. That's interesting. When can I buy it? And then you go, oh, okay, better go build it now. So <laughs> that's one of the learnings and, uh, and it's directly influenced by observing uh, Dropbox and how successfully they did. And that's all based around the Lean Startup uh, series and everything else going on back of it as well. Yeah. I mean, Hector and I both work with a lot of pre-seed and seed stage companies and I find myself telling to a lot of founders, you can still have traction without a product, which is wait lists or signups or letters of intent, depending on what your business is. And it's such an important thing for founders to understand that as investors, we're looking for a growth mindset and an ability to communicate the value proposition to customers and people to say, yes, we're willing to pay for that thing. Uh, so that's great, great bit of feedback there. Yeah, that's, that's very true. It, it is because as a founder, you really are out there to try and sell. And regardless whether you're an engineer, whether you're an operations guy, whether whatever you are, it's one of the correlations. Because I, I invested myself and was also a partner in the venture fund for a while. That it's that ability to convince people. Another observation is pilots are the death of all startups. And it's always a big concern if, yes, people sign up to pilots, but have they actually bought the product? It's, pilots are easy. Uh, just when I was advising uh, and I was on an investment committee of textiles, Barclays, it was really try and get an actual sale or even a letter of intent to buy. But a pilot, you can be doing it for two years. Pilots tend to also be in the finance world from uh, chief digital officers and innovation people who have zero budget anyway. So <laughs> it's the difference of the thing. So trying to mentor people, go find a real buyer and see how, how they react. Yeah, and you need to learn where your price point is and stuff, and you're not going to get that from a pilot. So because we're here talking about Currency Cloud and Rails Bank, really, I mean, I'm interested to know for you personally, what was the uh, sort of emotional side of selling Currency Cloud to Visa? And then is that part of the reason why you jumped on the horse so quickly with Rails Bank? No, I mean, I, I sold my first company in 2006. We founded it in 1999, and that's part of BAE Systems and the FTSE 100. So uh, we'd already sold one company, and that was I founded Currency Cloud back in, in 2007. So that's more the, the first company journey into Currency Cloud. And what I learned then is don't be precious about the baby. <laughs> if somebody's going to give you a price and a good price on it, it's time to move on. If it's a good price and it's going to a good buyer, uh, the team are looked after and everything. Don't be precious about the baby. To, to me, it's building companies, having great fun doing it. If you build a great company, naturally an exit or a flotation or something will come. Uh, and don't, when you start the company, think about, oh, what's the valuation going to be at this time? When are we going to exit it? And, and who are the exits on any decks or anything like that? Build a great company. People will come and find you if you build a good company. Have you taken learnings from Currency Cloud across to Rails Bank? And is there, in your mind, is there a sort of blueprint that you've built for building a successful business? Or have you tried things at Rails Bank that worked at Currency Cloud but haven't worked at Rails Bank, for example? One of the first things we learned at Currency Cloud was we worked retail. Uh, we had a retail business uh, and a direct-to-SME uh, business. And when I met these couple of people called Krista and Tarvet, who founded TransferWise, I was asked to look at their deck to help them with some effort, how the foreign exchange actually worked. 
because peer-to-peer never works in foreign exchange. It's always euro sterling, euro dollar, are always only 10 to 20% you can cross. The rest of it, you've got to find a market maker. So the, uh, the big learning there was when I saw their deck, I thought, well, these guys actually know retail and know how to acquire customers because it's really hard to acquire retail in those days for FX and payments. And uh, they just were streets ahead. But what they didn't have was infrastructure. And hence, uh, we pivoted uh, Currency Cloud into what was originally called FX Capital Group, is the original name of the company. And we pivoted into uh, sort of early 2011. We created APIs for people to build their business on top of. So we had Fidel Bank as our first customer, as they wanted multi-currency deposits. Uh, we had TransferWise and quite a few others. And that was the, the real learning moment. If you're not a retail type person, uh, and you have no idea about dig- real digital marketing like they did, they really did have a good idea about it, get out of that business pretty quickly. And that was real learning. Stick to infrastructure if you know it. And that's what we did. Rails Bank is pure infrastructure play from day one. We have a rule of not going direct to any of our customers' customers like retail or SMEs. So there's no conflict of interest or channel conflict, which there would have been in currency cloud if we kept our retail business, which uh, we actually sold in January 2012. Yeah, nice. And so I'm interested to learn a little bit more about you. I mean, you've had so many multiple successes and we just talked about some of the learnings there and how you look at things. But as a founder yourself, what would you say is your biggest strength that maybe differentiates you or that you just see as like something that you really bring to the party? It's probably uh, within uh, FinTech, the financial services, I think I'm one of the few people who understand the technology all the way through the trading, all the way through to running a balance sheet. And I've done pretty much those jobs all the way through, both uh, in the capital markets world and in the, the sort of engineering world. And so being really deeply able to understand if you're solving for something, how it actually operates, how you actually build it with the tech, what the regulatory pieces are. So you've got experience of working with and talking to regulators and also how your balance sheet and all your finances work. So you can get a holistic view of what the product looks like because within finance, the product is not just the technology and in, in our one, because we're a vertically integrated stack from a central bank all the way to consumer. You've got to understand all of those pieces uh, to deliver uh, the simple thing called an API and to the customer. So that it's uh, that's a, one of the few guys who actually understands that in depth. The other piece is probably just being able to see through the problem and see that's a major problem. Here's ways of solving it to look at say the infrastructure issue. And, uh, and strip away trying to create Rolls Royces when a, uh, a Mondeo is a perfectly good and well-respected car. You can even ask Jeremy Clarkson that. So it's one of his favorite cars. Do you drive a Mondeo or a Rolls Royce, Nigel? I used to drive, I drive a, a Land Rover Defender and a Porsche. Those are the two things I drive. Nice. Is that a skill to see through the problem? Is that something you've always had, do you think? Or is it something that has kind of been learned from launching and running so many companies? I started my career as an engineer. And so mechanical engineers are trained to solve things and not theorize about things too much. If you get like physicists love to theorize and and things and uh, mechanical engineers, there's a classic one named uh, aeronautics called a Reynolds number. 
And the Reynolds number is basically because the math doesn't work. You stick the Reynolds number in and the calculations all suddenly start working. So it's, it's generally generated from experimentation numbers. I mean, the world's moved on now because you've got much more computer capabilities. So having the ability to find your Reynolds number, that just gets things working. And don't really ask why it works. It just does. Okay. And uh, so don't over-engineer things. And as CEO, what do you, at this stage of your business, what do you see as, as your key responsibilities? And I'm interested to learn also how you measure those. You know, if you hold yourself accountable to the standards you want to set. Sure. Uh, my key responsibility is getting out the way of people and letting them get on with their jobs. Because my main role is to hire phenomenal people, give them the encouragement and the direction they need, and occasionally the reins, but take the reins off as soon as you can, or stabilize as well as the reins. My main role is, is really about helping guide their decision-making, trusting them to make decisions, and liaison between them and raising the capital for the business and setting the vision of the business and uh, giving direction. Much as I'd love to get deep into a product, I've now got Stuart Gregory's six years in Fractalize. He's far better than me at products than I've ever, ever been. He now runs that and he runs it extremely well. John Hammond, who used to be Chief Commercial Officer at Currency Cloud, is extremely good at everything customer from the marketing side to the uh, sort of sales and the onboarding to customer success support and all those pieces they're able to run and those had to run an NPS score and, and motivate the sales team and everything correctly and, and target the right ideal customer profile. So it's, it's really initially you got to do everything and then you've got to give up the bits that you think you're good at and actually aren't. And so, but still give the direction and vision of the company and uh, motivate people to buy into that. It sounds like a two important chunks of your day are spent hiring and fundraising. Is, is that right? It's, it's hiring, fundraising, and helping solve problems that there's something blocked to the company. For example, uh, onboarding journey wasn't great because it was split across right, three decision makers. So making sure that it's one decision maker and then giving everybody the support that uh, they're not losing something. The gaining because we need to have one decision making there for the process can work. So it's uh, things like that. So it's, it's a lot of problem solving too, and and helping people tell the story in their business. So it's coaching uh, people to get out of PowerPoint decks, for example, and and into being able to articulate their business, their, their part of the business verbally uh, in front of people and know the detail of the data and the, the metrics and the OKRs without resorting to PowerPoint. That's interesting. So, so do you give coaching to people beneath you and sort of train them in selling the vision, getting buy-in, getting enthusiasm built, all that stuff? This is day-to-day management. So coaching is part of the job because as a CEO, really, you're, you're not a, a player on the pitch anymore. They, they don't want you on the pitch anymore. They want you to be the manager giving direction. So it's a similar sort of thing in a sports team. It's you sort of coach them, but once they're on the pitch, they've got to play and everything. So that that's how very much see the role now. We don't, but beforehand, I was probably too involved. And come to cloud, I was definitely too involved. And the evolution of first one, too involved. And so it's learning how to not be involved and act as a sort of a manager coach, uh, as opposed to a player coach. 
Hector and I are fascinated by the idea of like sports management and business management. That's a whole separate topic. So rugby is a massive passion of mine. I've played it for 25 years. So when I was eight, so I gave up quite a few years ago. If you look to when England won the, the World Cup, and I'm not English either, that was a, I'm, I'm Irish, so that was a, a real bad thing for me. But what Sir Clive Woodward did was he got a diverse team of people and brought them together. And they weren't the best players, but they were the best team. And there's no difference in, in uh, running a business. And so when he brought that team together, he had various techniques on how to make sure they all behave as a team. They owned the team, they owned the behaviors, uh, and there's very much core values led. And they produced some amazing rugby. And uh, they happened to have some very good, good individuals in there, but the individuals played in the team. When Martin took over, who was a phenomenal captain and a phenomenal player, and is still looked up to all over the world, he created a team of Martin Johnsons just in different shapes and sizes. And so there's no diversity in the team. So the big learning from that is diversity also wins. And then the incremental things that Dave Bailsford, I think on, the, on cycling, incremental things allow you to win. And so all those things, is, is whether you're managing a sports team or managing a business, they're all similar things. If you're always going forward, you're generally winning. I think McEnroe used to say that. He was always trying, always on the front foot, always, always attacking, always attacking. And that's why everybody else is feeling the pressure from him. If you're always going forward, your, your competitors feel that. They absolutely feel it, whether you're competitive in business or competitive on the pitch. And you can see it in rugby. If, well, as soon as you get New Zealand on the back foot, like Ireland did just recently, they couldn't be on the front foot. Therefore, they couldn't win. They did the same to them in, in the stadium in, in Chicago too. Even the best players in the world on the back foot find it difficult to win. So it's all this small steps going forward, incremental sort of improvements, no big bang stuff. Diversity is a massive thing for getting people. It's harder to manage because uh, it is a bit like herding cats, but uh, you get better outcomes and you get, I think, better thinking too with diverse types of people. Yeah, and there's a, there's a great podcast with Sir Clive Woodward on the High Performance Podcast and he gets the team to decide what on time means. And he puts them all in a room and says, come back to me when what on time means to you. And Martin Johnson comes out and says, we've discussed it. And on time means 10 minutes early. And so he said, great. So if I say 12 o'clock, you're all going to be there at 11.50, right? And he said, yeah. And so then he never had to tell anyone off for being late because they were never late and they were always 10 minutes early. And they'd subscribe to that. They came up with that themselves. It was very clever management. Teamship rules. There's teamship rules. Yeah. Yeah. Really fascinating. So... You've obviously sort of interested in that as a concept like management and team building and everything. So at your businesses, what's your like number one tip for hiring? Like, How do you go about pulling together these people? You've obviously got a couple of senior execs that you've known from previous companies and experiences. But when looking at completely new kind of roles, how do you go about that? And what's the silver bullet for you when, when making a hiring decision? Within your company, be absolutely clear on what your core values are and, uh, and the sort of behaviors that are expected and hire on that. Skills are secondary. Uh, so you really want to hire people who are super smart, can pick things up. But if they've got the same core values, the same behaviors, they'll fit in with the team, they'll figure, out, figure things out. And don't just hire them because they're nice. 
Okay. There's a whole load of theory and everything around behavior-based and, and values-based hiring as opposed to skills-based as well. Skills are the secondary uh, beyond that because thinking about better teams with the, if they've all got the same cool sets of values. And you'll see that in a team, if you've made a bad hire, for example, or somebody doesn't fit in and may not be, but it's not a bad person, but uh, they'll self-select out quite quickly. And, and so I think you let them go with their dignity and everything. If there's one tip is figure out what the values are of your company and uh, the values and behaviors and the hard people in, in for that. There's also somebody's experience, somebody who's worked in a, in a fairly comfortable sort of bank type position and then put them into a raging series A to series B high growth environment, can, they can feel incredibly lost as well. So there's, there's some experiences that people have gone through. I found, uh, this time hiring people like uh, Stuart from Transferwise, David Pratt, the former global financial controller for Transferwise has joined us on Monday as well. They've been through the same story when they came, I said to them, do you want to do the same thing again? Okay. <laughs> yeah, we got to check because it was probably quite a bruising journey in though Chris and Tarver, the great guys, sort of bruising journey going through the great growth that they went through. And so it's great having people, same core values with deep experience, relevant experience for the stage of, stage of our company. And then the, the other thing is the type of people, mindsets different for different stages. Some people mm -hmm. go all the way. I met somebody the other day in, in Lisbon, actually, uh, who uh, was, uh, I think he was the first VP hired into Amazon. So he's like 18 years or something in, in, in Amazon. That's probably a rare person who's gone through all the way through. And he's now the, the governance of the, the six pager. And so, uh, people move on and, and different skills are different stages and people prefer different stages. Uh, it's incredibly uncomfortable. Are they sort of like pre-revenue? So you got 55 pence in the bank account type of environment. Then you need just believers, <laughs> people who just uh, drunk the Kool-Aid and believe. And they get frustrated if they're in a, a big normal type company, they've got different skills and different uh, needs and wants. So it's focusing on, on the right people and behaviors and, and values. You said something interesting in there, which was around not hiring people that you necessarily like. And that's interesting to me because it makes a lot of sense, but it's also quite hard for some people to do, I would imagine. What does that actually mean to you? And how do you set in place kind of measures to make sure that People aren't just hiring people they like. Yeah, somebody's uh, after an interview, uh, somebody's interviewed uh, a candidate and say, what do you think of them? And as soon as they say they're a really nice person, that's a major red flag. Because what you should be thinking about is, are they great for the job? Are they core values? And have they got the relevant experience? And, and they happen to be a really nice person. So that, that is one sort of metric or <laughs> acid test of, of, of things. And the same sort of thing after coming out of an interview, if your impression was that's a really, really nice person and you weren't thinking through all the other things that you needed to be thinking through, it's probably a no. Interesting. So perhaps that's the litmus test. It's like, you know, do you come out thinking that's a really nice person, but on the flip side, tell me whether I'm wrong, but presumably if you come out saying, you know, that, that person's a really horrible person, <laughs> you don't want that person in the company. So it's like, 
there's there's that too, and and uh, they'd probably be screened out within about five minutes of the interview. I've I've cut interviews when somebody's been just highly unpleasant, uh, not listening, but, but absolutely true. So, but the, what I mean is, you don't try and hire highly unpleasant people. That's a definite no no. But it's just saying you don't have to be uh, friends. If you see what I mean, you've got to be respectful colleagues, and you'll see that same on 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 at sports. Not everybody you know, on, on various rugby teams are great mates, but they play together as a great team uh, as well. Yeah, if if you're coming out and the first thing you can think of is they're really nice, rather than they're going to be amazing and move the needle, then yeah, that's the that's the litmus. But if somebody says yes, they're going. I literally had one yesterday, who uh, my CFO said yes, basically yes, that she will massively move the needle. That's a good thumbs up. He used exactly that comment and that you can tell that uh, that's a person we really need and I'm sure we'll do really well within the company. All of this kind of leads to a question around culture and, and we've kind of covered different aspects of culture with what we've spoken about already. But how do you guys think about culture? And, you know, founders that we've spoken to actually think quite differently about it. And some founders are very culture first and believe that the culture is what has led to the success of the business. How do you guys think about it? Is it kind of a happy byproduct of building a successful business and hiring nice people, not hiring nice people, hiring effective people? Or is it something you focus very clearly on? You've got to give an environment where people feel safe, have the right core values and everything, and are motivated to do the right things for the customer. And a classic example is a bad culture is people who just do tasks rather than focus on outcomes. And so we, you know, everybody finds that sort of thing in part of the business, but if you can have the culture of the business is focus on outcomes, and, and that's a massive transfer-wise thing, actually. Focus on outcomes, you then forget about the task. You've got to do them, but the outcome's the important piece. And that's an amazing culture because people see results. People feel happy because they got results and, and they are empowered to generate the outcome. Because if they're not given the tools and money, the, the space, and uh, the backing to produce outcomes, they're never going to do that. But if they're just sitting there doing tasks, they'll just keep on doing tasks and you don't get outcomes. And we've had it in parts of our business as well. So that's something to, uh, an outcome-based business is a much more healthy environment. Uh, so culture is massively important, but I just look at it really at values and behaviors. When you get those right, you get uh, happier, happy people working in, in, in the company, you'll always get some people who are unhappy. Unfortunately, that's the nature of it as you go. So you've got a thousand people, there'll always be some unhappy people in there. That's the nature of relation sizes and things. But uh, another one is, is very much you know, empowering people. We were growing fast. We were, we were having some challenges with our transaction monitoring side of the business. What it turned out to be is the team weren't empowered to sort it out themselves. And once we figured that out, the uh, Sinead who actually uh, led that uh, piece of work and we, they had this sort of like, get everything off our chest. It's terrible. Here are all the problems with it. Here's ways we can go forward. Here's the numbers and stuff that back up. So it gives some insights as to how we should be doing things. Okay, this is what we need to go forward. And they've done an amazing job of sorting that out. And we, we just leave it alone because they're parents. So. You'll find this in growth, you suddenly find some things will stop because you haven't had uh, our own eyes on the ball on an important area of the business. It's best step back, 
empower people, give them motivation, give them the backing they need and let them get on with it. Now things don't change overnight as well. And so you've got to give them the six to nine months to make the change. You can't get six to nine months work into two afternoons as well because the change is part of the, the day job as well, as well as also instigating change is important. So, and a lot of scaling companies I've talked to, quite a few founders who've built uh, massive businesses uh, and all quite, uh, now some of them are uh, uh, investors, quite sort of behind the scenes investors. And it's the same thing as that they've got exactly the same stories of uh, things they grew too fast, things weren't working over here, empower them, give them backing, uh, celebrate it, celebrate the death of the old, if you said I mean, and, um, and, and move on and just, just, um, and just be cognizant as nothing's perfect all the time. It's always, a, it's always a challenge, but make sure you're going forward all the time. Yeah, n- nothing is perfect, especially in scale-ups. And you, there's been a lot of success, but what is a moment that you look back on where things just suddenly felt like it was all going wrong? Like a, that email that you get in the morning that just like sucker punches you and uh, what was your decision-making around like trying to get back on track? There's one investor, I won't name them. They flew over and were pretty much looking at our Series A came all the way from California, so that should narrow it down a bit, and were super pumped uh, about investing in us and stuff. They said, okay, we've got our Series A nails and stuff. We had some backup, but they uh, then two days later announced uh, investing in one of our competitors. So that was pretty, pretty poor behavior on that. And then uh, another one was we had a term sheet, which a couple of days later, and we literally, I think we had £1.77 in the bank account, and we turned that term sheet down because it looked like a private equity term sheet and private equity term sheets aren't particularly attractive because, uh, when you run it forward, it basically means you've lost uh, complete control and diluted to, to hell and everything like that. And so we declined that and out of luck, uh, another investor flew in from Tel Aviv, uh, Mayrav and, uh, Hanoi and Adoram from Manetta VC, and they uh, gave us a verbal term sheet after morning's due diligence. So it's, it's like, that was quite a few, roller coaster of a few days. So the story there is just to keep going and do what you what you know was the right decision, really. Don't assume like you've got one or two investors, go and talk to tons of them. And it's a, it's like a sales process, it's a funnel. You go through them, target the right ones. So you're not talking to somebody who invests in pharmaceuticals and then you have fintech. That's a totally stupid idea, but you've got to have a big funnel to come through. And it's actually quite a learning process too, because you've really got to learn to pitch. And that's why with my first investor meetings these days, I never use a PowerPoint deck because I, I, I was pitching. And uh, the previous person I was pitching to him, he was just uh, typing on his laptop as the guy was pitching. Uh, so actually the person pitched was a very good friend of mine and, uh, they went to pitched, uh, my colleague pushed his laptop top down. We didn't use PowerPoint decks. And then, so that was a learning thing. Thanks to all of on that, uh, he'd pay attention if you, if you talked and didn't show a PowerPoint deck. Nigel, it's been yeah, fantastic having you. And we, as you know, always ask people about a dinner party guest game or a business, business lunch game where you can invite three people. And I wonder who those three people would be for you. Sure. Uh, there'd be uh, Jimi Hendrix, Jeff Bezos, and Edmund Hillary. 
Jimi Hendrix because uh, it's just like he changed. I, I'm a guitarist and I played, built, and collect guitars for whatever thirty years. It's just he changed the way people played. Nobody sounded anything like him before it. So the, it's just I asked him a question: uh, Did he just do it that way, or what made him? What influenced him? What? Uh, uh, how did he discover his uh, his new way? It's just because that was a, a massive changing moment in, in music, especially guitar and how it was used. Jeff Bezos, it's really, a, it's, he's built a massive company that still remains very startup and very customer focused with a total obsession around it. Really interesting to hear the stories. I, with a colleague of his who we met at uh, Lisbon gave a lot of background and stories, but it'd be nice to hear it from, from the horse himself. Edmund Hillary, I'm, I, I love the outdoors and the mountains. I used to be a professional sailor, uh, ski, a mountaineer, all that type of things. Edmund Hillary is the first person up Everest. So you, you can imagine asking him, what was it like? Apart from cold, windy, <laughs> and God, I need to get down again and get some food. Three really interesting guests who have operated sort of at the extremities of their sectors. So very, very fascinating. Yeah, I'm sure it'd be great. Well, thank you so much, Nigel. We've really enjoyed having you on. There's loads in there for, for founders and people who are thinking about founding a business to to chew over. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for coming on and telling us your riding unicorn story. No, thank you. And thanks uh, for the invitation. And hope it was uh, helpful and useful to, to the audience. Absolutely. That's it for this week. I hope you were able to take away many learnings from this episode. Thankfully, we have plenty more amazing guests and insightful conversations coming your way every week, every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe to Riding Unicorns on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. If you're interested in supporting the show, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RidingUnicorns underscore and follow us on LinkedIn as well by searching Riding Unicorns. See you next time.